Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I am Casey Hunt, and this is CNN Tonight. Surprise! It's October! But in politics, we're about to find out if the notorious, previously notorious, October surprise still really matters on either political side. For Herschel Walker, the Republican Senate nominee in Georgia, it's not just the Daily Beast reporting. They, of course, reported that he paid for his then-girlfriend's abortion back in 2009. Reporting, we should note, CNN has not independently verified. But it's also the words of his son, Christian, who released a video calling out his father, asking Republicans straight up, do you care about family values? And on top of that, Christian tweeted two days ago that he and his mother had to move six times in six months to get away from Walker's violence. Walker responded to this quickly. He denied the abortion claims basically instantly, vehemently. And in a Fox Fox News interview today, Walker denied knowing who his accuser is, despite this get well card that allegedly shows his signature and an alleged image of a personal check that was signed by Walker. Have you figured out who it is? Uh, Not at all. And that's what uh, I hope everyone can see. It's sort of like everyone is anonymous or everyone is leaking and they want you to confess to something you have no clue about. But it just shows how desperate they are right now. So what may surprise you as much as the claim is the reaction among some prominent conservative anti-abortion voices. How many times... Have I said four very important words? These four words. Winning is a virtue. So I don't care if Herschel Walker paid to abort endangered baby eagles. I want control of the Senate. Endangered baby eagles. Okay. It's not just a lone radio host, though. Former President Trump, Senator Rick Scott, and other Republicans are sticking with Walker. They're doing the same electoral math, putting the team jersey above one controversial name that's on the back in a state that is absolutely critical to Republican hopes of retaking the majority in the Senate. But they're not the only ones, Republicans, facing an October surprise. Democrats are also grappling with news today, just when it seemed that the gas price roller coaster had come to a stop. OPEC Plus today announced it will slash oil production by 2 million barrels a day, which is the biggest cut in production since the beginning of the pandemic. And that could mean higher gas prices before Election Day, fueling Republicans' hopes of taking back Congress on a message of rescuing a troubled economy that they say that Democrats can't fix. Rising oil prices wouldn't just impact gas prices. It could also mean that inflation generally stays high for longer, which could put pressure on the Fed to raise interest rates even more aggressively. That would be a rough surprise for everyone. So let's get the statistics that matter or at least can help us explain these surprises and whether they're going to matter. Our senior data editor, Harry Enton, joins us now. Uh, Harry, thanks so much for being with us tonight. Um, Can we talk about rising gas prices, the potential here? I mean, we are about five weeks out 
uh, from the midterm elections here. So there's a little bit of time. But how closely does this track and, and how worried should Democrats be? I would be worried, Casey. And the reason I would be worried is take a look here. This is the recent gas prices and the 2022 generic congressional ballot. If you look back when we had the highest gas prices, right, this is back on June 14th, the GOP held a three-point lead in the generic congressional ballot. Now, look, a lot of things have happened over the last few months. But one of the things that has happened is that gas prices, in fact, fell to their lowest level on September 20th. And look then, what we saw is the trend line. Democrats then had a one-point lead on the generic congressional ballot. You look at the current situation, gas prices have risen a little bit. And as gas prices have risen, Republicans are doing a little bit better on the generic congressional ballot. So it does seem there be this correlation between higher gas prices and Republicans doing better. Really interesting. I mean, the approval rating, too, is really remarkable. So let's talk about the Walker-Warnock race specifically. Um, where does that stand, and how do you see this controversy moving these numbers, if at all? I, look, I don't know necessarily where things are going to go, but I will tell you right now we have a tight race in Georgia. You know, Raphael Warnock, the incumbent at 48%, Herschel Walker at 44%. You see I have a libertarian on there. You go, why the heck would I have a libertarian who's just at 4%? And that is because of— Exactly. If no candidate gets 50% plus one, there'll be a runoff on December 6th. I can imagine no in more interesting thing for a political junkie such as myself if, in fact, control of the United States Senate relies on a runoff in December. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, we faced something pretty similar when we had those two uh, races for Georgia Senate seats that Democrats managed uh, to carry back in 2020. Of course, Mitch McConnell blames Donald Trump uh, for that. Uh, and I have a feeling that there's going to be plenty to blame to go around if it happens again. Um, so let's talk about precedent for October surprises here. In past elections, what stands out to you and what does that tell you about whether they still have a big impact? All right. So let's go through a little bit of history, right? This one is sort of an October surprise. It happened right at the end of December, but I'm going to count it. I'm going to count it. And that was the impact of the Mark, Mark Foley page scandal back in 2006. Look, the forecast for pre-scandal pre for Republican House seats was 217. Then you jump to the forecast on election eve, 204. Actual Republican House seats won, 202. So this to me was a scandal, an October surprise, even though it happened at the end of September, that did seem to have an impact. But let's look at a October surprise that really didn't, right? Go back to the last midterm election. Remember Trump was tweeting all about the caravan, right? Coming from Central uh, America, the migrant caravans. Look at the forecast for the House before the first Trump tweet on the caravan. It was 235 for Democrats. What was the actual result? 235. The Senate, 52. And then you see, in fact, this is Republicans. This should actually be 47. But the point is that, in fact, there wasn't much of a change, at least on, in that one. Now, let's take a look at 2016, the presidential popular vote. Remember, there were a ton of scandals right here. Pre-access Hollywood tape, Clinton plus six points. Didn't really move a lot because pre-Comey letter on Anthony Weiner on October 28th, it was still Clinton plus six. Look at the actual election result. Clinton plus two points. It did seem that the Comey, that email, that whole entire scandal, the letter on Weiner, did in fact move things. And of course, remember that Trump won the Electoral College and he won the presidency. So sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. We'll see what happens this year. 
Uh, very interesting, Harry. I mean, certainly the Clinton campaign um, would would be happy to levy a lot of blame uh, at Jim uh, Comey for, for how that those final weeks played out. Uh, Harry, thank you so much for being with us. Really always appreciate your insights. And joining us now to talk more about all this, CNN political commentator and Democratic strategist Maria Cardona, CNN political analyst and the managing editor of Politics for Axios, Margaret Taleb, and former RNC communications director, Doug High. So um, a lot to chew on uh, there with what Harry uh, was offering um, let me start with you, Maria, because, you know, quite frankly, I think the OPEC gas prices news is probably the most significant midterm election news we've had in quite a while. What's your take on how this could affect things? Well, it's certainly not welcome news, uh, but I will say we don't know yet how it is going to affect actual gas prices, right? Is it going to be an immediate impact? Is it going to be an immediate rise in gas prices? Or is it going to be slow? We know that the administration is laserly focused on this. Uh, they're, they're, they're thinking of doing some release of the Strategic Petroleum Reserves, right, to, to kind of mitigate that. Um, hopefully that will work. They're continuing to focus on doing everything they can also for the, um, the oil companies to keep down the margin of money they want to make, right? And I think that the, um, the American electorate understands where this is coming from. Will it help mitigate blame? Uh, you know, who knows? Again, this is not something that Democrats want right now, but at the same time, they are focused on the contrast between the parties. Biden is not actually on the ballot. It's Democrats, you know, each candidate in each district, in each Senate race. Sure. And they are focused on the, the keen contrast between the parties. And I think there's a lot there for Democrats to be feeling good about. Axios has a um, tracker with Google Trends for the midterms. You guys go online, you can check what district you live in and all that. Very good shameless plug. But one thing, but one thing I'll tell you is that um, over the course of the past month, what we have seen is even before today's news, as gas prices have begun ticking a little bit back up, the amount of searches around the phrase gas prices has begun tipping, ticking back up. Back in June, when it was a real crisis for Biden, it was the number three search in the country. Hmm. By a month Amazing. ago, it was like the number 16 search. Guess what it is before today's announcement, as of last week, back up to number 12. It seems like, like on the one hand, you want to think, it, it depends how much they go up by for how big of a crisis sure. this is. But on yeah. the other hand, when all of your costs are exacerbated by inflation, everything costs more. The, Interest rates cost more, food costs more. When everything yeah. costs more, gas prices is a constant reminder of it every time you go to the pump, every time you fill up the tank, every time you commute. So it's, it's a, it is a problem. We don't know how big a problem. The bigger problem for Democrats is that it takes attention away from abortion. And all Democrats want to talk about is abortion. And Republicans yeah. are looking for anything else. Now gas prices, throw that on the pile with immigration, throw it on the pile with crime. And all of that is not what Democrats want to be. They won't keep Democrats from talking about abortion. Though. So, yeah. I mean, so speaking of abortion, I want to turn back, Doug, with you to um, the Georgia controversy. And I just want to show everyone there's an ad out tonight from Herschel Walker's campaign where he addresses these allegations. Take a look. Rebel One Up's running a nasty, dishonest campaign. As everyone knows, I had a real battle with mental health. One Up's a preacher who doesn't tell the truth. He doesn't even believe in redemption. Okay, what do you make of that? Well, it doesn't specifically address the concerns. So either they were <laughs> rocket fast in how they, they addressed this, or this was already in the can because they were concerned that this or something else would, would come up like this. And, you know, to what Harry talked about earlier, we're all going to try and figure out what the political impacts are going to be. But I'll take you back to that Saturday in October uh, when I was in Chapel Hill going to a football game. And I got a phone call from a reporter named Margaret Taliff. 
who said, <laughs> what does this Access Hollywood tape mean for the elections? And I said, probably the same thing Maria said. It's over. Mm -hmm. It's over for Donald yeah, Trump. Yeah, we all right? thought that. Yeah. Frank yeah. Priebus was saying, get out. Yeah. And yeah. Well, to Donald Trump. And so was, I mean, Paul Ryan was on the phone with House Republicans right? telling them, you don't, have to, you don't have to back this guy up. And you know who was wrong? I was wrong. Maria was we wrong. wrong. <laughs> Paul Ryan was wrong. Yeah. Frank Priebus was wrong. Yeah. Donald so, Trump was the only one who wasn't so wrong. So this is yeah. a lot of news. But let's wait and see data on what comes in, on what the impact is, and let's see how long that data holds true. Yeah. Uh, because if we're talking about this in six weeks, that's one thing. If it's only a two or three week story, it's not that big of a deal politically for Herschel Walker. Well, I mean, and you know, Margaret, they're basically running the Trumpian playbook on this, right? Like, I mean, if you look at Donald Trump's statement, he's like, yeah, Herschel came out there denying it, which was the right thing to do, and, you know, we should believe him. I mean, and that's you listen to what Trump has said behind the scenes, it's always deny, deny, deny. And, 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 and demonize your opponent and say your opponent's really the bad guy. And yeah. I don't know, like, I've seen this, the Grace ad. I don't know how you connect Warnock to having done the wrong thing because yeah. he preemptively won't redeem you for the thing that you we should have denied that you have done. Warnock hasn't attacked Walker at all. They've been really this careful is, about it. Yeah. As far as they don't need to. I mean, they told Manu this is not the other day, yesterday. He hadn't yes. seen it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, correct. Um, but I think that's exactly what he's doing. He's saying, it's Herschel Walker saying, I'm not the problem, my opponent's the problem. Um, his denials are weird because if, if you just knew that none of it had any bearing on reality, yeah. it, like, it, I don't know, it's not the way people talk. Like, I don't sign my name, H. I, this, it's a very curious story, it's a complicated story, but I think the question is not, is the Republican establishment going to pull up stakes, it is, do, are voters going to take all of their cues right. from that Republican establishment? Will the Susan B. Anthony list and Mitch McConnell's leadership pack and what, Rick Scott's money, is that how, vote, how Republican voters. voters and centrist voters, when they go to the poll, there were already signs of a split ticket in Georgia. There were already signs that Kemp, uh, Governor Kemp is doing much better than Herschel Walker. Yeah. Inside yeah. the voting booth, what are voters going to do? I have no idea, right. but I think that is the question. Especially white women, college-educated voters that we're looking at for other issues like abortion as well. All right, everybody stick around. we got a lot more to talk about tonight. Uh, coming up here, President Biden and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis put politics aside to focus on the victims of Hurricane Ian. Are both leaders rising to the task ahead of their potential face-off down the road when CNN Tonight returns? A cordial reception, that's what President Biden received from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis today as they toured destruction from Hurricane Ian. The two men notably put their political rivalry aside and projected unity on one thing, Florida's recovery. I think one of the things that you're seeing in this response, we are cutting through the bureaucracy. We are cutting through the red tape, uh, and that's from local government, state government, all the way up uh, to the president. We've seen extraordinary cooperation uh, at every level of government, as the governor has said, and the cooperation began before the storm hit. So today was the second time this week that Biden played the role of consoler in chief, much like the sentiment that he expressed in Puerto Rico on Monday. Today, he issued this vow. I want the people of Florida to know you have my commitment and America's commitment that we're not going to leave. Later, after the television cameras have moved on, we're still going to be here with you. We're still going to be moving. We're still going to be doing everything we can to try to put your lives back together again. 
our panel is back with us to discuss. So, uh, Margaret Talbot, what do you make of this? I mean, we did not see the hug that, for example, we saw between Chris Christie and Barack Obama right before the 2012 election. We saw a handshake, uh, but they both seemed to be, uh, you know, I think focused on what, quite frankly, even if you look at it from a political perspective, all voters want is confidence and cooperation Mm -hmm. from their leaders at a time like this. Yeah, I actually wasn't surprised at all that this is how they played it because it would have been political malpractice to do it any other way for both of them. And they both have a vested interest in projecting competency and maybe let's not even say bipartisanship, like nonpartisanship. It's a disaster of epic proportions that involves death and that involves months of people losing their homes, being homeless, unable to get insurance. Like it's a crisis, a multi-level crisis. Um, But uh, DeSantis has a more immediate goal, which is, you know, re-election in November. Biden's trying to minimize Democratic losses, but he has a longer term goal, which is re-election in 2024. Mm. Florida is a very important state. And he's going to want to contrast Donald Trump throwing rolls of paper towels against himself, saying, you know, we have only one objective. Just before we began the show, he tweeted the same frame, except for he was at the mic instead of Ron DeSantis, but the same frame uh, of of them standing together and said, like, to the people of Florida, we have just one job. And so I I think this is both of them playing both a short term game and a long game. Yeah, you use the term consoler in chief uh, with Mm -hmm. Biden. We know that Joe Biden plays that role very well. He is one of the most empathetic presidents we've ever had, if not um, of all time. Ron DeSantis, we know, is a cultural warrior and he's a very effective cultural warrior. We haven't seen him in a moment like this. Mm -hmm. He did what was expected, but it's also notable, given how we've seen him in other roles, that he stepped up and has done a good job so Mm -hmm. far in that role of governor. Because we we hear presidents and governors say, I'm the governor, I'm the president of not one party, but of the entire state, the entire country. This is the opportunity to do that. Yeah, I mean, it was, there have been some moments throughout the last few days where he's kind of taken shots at the media and kind of the way that it's been covered. Mm -hmm. But aside from that, you know, Maria, I think it's actually, he has really so far passed the initial test in terms of, and chances are voters are likely to reward him for that in November. Yeah, I actually think this does have more of a 2024 lens for both of them than I think going into the the midterms, because for Joe Biden, he is not just demonstrating that he continues to be the consoler in chief. He understands what people go through during these times of tragedy, the empathy, but he's also showing that government can be a force for good. And that is a huge contrast with what Republicans have certainly tried to communicate about government. And you saw it, even DeSantis said it there, cut through the bureaucracy, right, at the local, state and federal level. And that's fine. But I think for 2024, that is going to continue to be a big message. And I wonder if even though there was not a hug, there was a handshake, there was at some point uh, uh, Joe Biden tapped DeSantis on, on the arm and they smiled. I think those images, if Donald Trump is running He's going to use those against DeSantis because I wouldn't put anything past him. And I think that that is going to be something. I mean, 2024 is going to be brutal, if not anything else. And I think that this is going to be essentially a big image that we're going to see then if Joe Biden is running, if Donald Trump is running, if DeSantis is running. Well, and we actually I mean, I think we can show you the the president actually had some very kind words uh, for the Florida governor. Watch. Mm -hmm. I think he did a good job. Look, I called him. I think he before he called me. I heard him. He worked hand in glove. We have very different political philosophies. And, but he worked hand in glove. And he's been on dealing with this crisis. We've been completely lockstep. So, 
you know, there you have it, Margaret. I mean, and maybe to Maria's point, that gets used against DeSantis later. But, you know, at the same time, it's it's sort of hard to, I feel like it's it's a pretty easy argument for DeSantis to rebut. He's like, I was, I was doing what I had to do. You know, we need money from the federal government to help us. Yeah, he's, as we have all discussed in recent <laughs> days, embracing federal funds at this time. But like to Doug's point, this does play also to Joe Biden's strengths, mm-hmm. being that... Um, consoler competency in a time of crisis. That's a core part of his brand. He's not yeah. as good at, uh, uh, you know, messaging against um, whatever. I mean, against anyone. Yeah. That's not really what no, he I mean, does. No, some of the political things Ron DeSantis has done, the immigrants to Martha's Vineyard, et cetera, have put Democrats back on their heels. And there'll be time for both to revisit that, but not well, on the ground and floor. Well, I also, yeah. th- I also think it could help Joe Biden in this whole, like, empathetic um, realm when DeSantis, and at some point we know he will, will go back to the culture wars. And the culture wars, he can be absolutely portrayed as somebody who is cruel, who is intent on causing harm on certain communities in the country. And then you have that big contrast with Joe Biden. And I think that hurts him and helps Joe Biden and the Democrats. We could potentially have four Republicans from Florida running (laughs) for president. Trump, DeSantis, Rubio, and and Scott. And all this advantaged DeSantis, without question. That's a really interesting way to look at it. All right, everybody stick around. We're going to talk again uh, later on this hour. But coming up next, Alex Jones just ran away from a fight why the conspiracy theorist is suddenly going silent as a jury gets ready to decide how much his Sandy Hook lies should cost him. Plus, we have a former InfoWars insider here tonight. What fuels the machine of misinformation? That's next. A decade of lies, threats, and fear. Parents whose children were murdered at Sandy Hook Elementary sat in a Connecticut courtroom today. The person who refused to show his face was Alex Jones. He chose to leave the state rather than have to confront the families he called liars. His lawyers didn't bother to present any evidence in his defense, but the prosecution let Jones' own radio show talk for him. I'm just going to be completely honest. I totally enjoy it. So, so, I mean, I've I, 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 I reached that point of real peace where I'm just at peace with this. I enjoy it. I enjoy it now. A Texas jury already determined Jones should have to pay almost $50 million. The Connecticut jury is expected to hear closing arguments tomorrow. But none of that is stopping Jones' devoted listeners from tuning in to hear his conspiracy theories. Josh Owens spent four years working with Alex Jones at InfoWars. Uh, Josh, thanks very much for being with us tonight. Um, I'm glad you're here to try and help us understand what is in this man's head. In your estimation, where is the line between what Jones actually believes and what he thinks works for his brand, his like sales pitch? Because I mean, he's been using these trials basically as content. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and claim to know what's in the man's head because um, that would be a futile attempt. But um, where's the line? I don't think there is a line. Um, Jones has been doing this for decades. He is on the show, uh, you know, on the air six days a week uh, and has been for a long time. I think if you asked him that question, he wouldn't be able to answer where that line is. And ultimately, I don't know if it matters because what does it matter if Jones believes what he says? Because he has a giant audience that believes what he says and they're willing to do, it seems, horrific things based on what he says. 
It's really stunning. I mean, his show was kicked off almost all of the major internet platforms and social media basically four years ago or so. And we know, though, from his trial in Texas that InfoWars is now making more money than it was four years ago. I mean, how is that possible? How has he maintained the hold on this audience? Well, look, like I said, he's been doing this for decades. So he may have been removed from social media. So it might be a little bit more difficult for him to get new listeners, but he has a devoted following. So I think people found false comfort in the fact that Jones was removed from social media. They kind of wiped their hands of it. They said he's gone. So it's over. And uh, I think we've seen in this trial and we've seen, you know, anyone that's paying attention to him has seen that uh, he isn't going away. So what are the chances that he's actually going to have to, I mean, he is going to have to pay money after this trial. I mean, is that going to actually change any of his behavior? Well, I don't know. I mean, he says, you know, he's going to appeal everything and he claims, you know, he laughs on the show and says he doesn't have money. So this is all pointless. Um, You know, I don't know what the repercussions are of this. I think the value in this trial is for the families. I think that is what the discussion should be because that's the most important thing going on here. People, I feel like people need to be using the name Alex Jones much less and they need to be talking about um, Scarlett Lewis and Neil Heslin or Robbie and Alyssa Parker or Francine Wheeler because those are the people that I believe deserve the platform right now. No, it's it's actually, it's a really, really good point. I mean, I, I covered the wake of Sandy Hook on Capitol Hill when those families were uh, advocating for changes to our nation's gun laws. And, uh, you know, I've never seen um, people in more pain than, than the faces of those parents as they went from office to office. So, I mean, thank you from that for that reminder. And let's also talk, though, I mean, Alex Jones's impact is bigger than just this. Obviously, this is this emotional and horrible situation. But there was also the Pizzagate conspiracy. And then there's January 6th. I mean, in the case of Pizzagate, I mean, I, my family regularly eats at that small pizza joint that was threatened. Um, it's in suburban Washington, D.C. Violence followed his rhetoric there. January 6th, you see the same thing. I, what's the next threat? I am scared to guess what the next threat is, but Jones, look, here's an example. So, so I, I don't imagine that the CNN on its wa- audience watches Alex Jones on a daily basis or maybe ever. A lot of people's introduction to Jones is through, uh, I don't know, some people think he's a comedian. Some people think that what he talks about is funny. You have people talking about just, for example, you know, atrazine or chemicals turning the frogs gay. And then people laugh at that, like, well, this is this crazy guy. But what's beneath that? I mean, Jones is openly uh, anti-trans. Jones is openly anti-gay. Jones says LGBTP. That P stands for pedophile. So you see what Jones's rhetoric has led to, as you said, in Pizzagate and then January 6th. So there is real ramifications to what Jones talks about, regardless of how you view him or what you think about him. It's important to pay attention to him. I just think it's less important to allow him to control the narrative. So, um, you know, you obviously, I mean, you were inside this realm, but you actually decided that this narrative, you know, you pulled yourself out of the narrative. You disavowed him. I mean, how did that happen for you? And how do you do that for other people? Oh, it's such an important question. And I don't know if I have the answer for everyone, but I know that I was lucky enough to be with my partner. Uh, Her name is Lacey. And I was lucky enough to be with some someone who was willing to push me and stick by me and 
force me to question things and force me to continue to look at look at my actions while in that place. So I think that might be the most important thing is for families and loved ones to have conversations with people, because unfortunately, it seems like most people know someone who's kind of fallen down that rabbit hole and they believe some pretty horrific, absurd things. I don't know if there's a silver bullet, but I have to believe that having conversations and being compassionate and leading with love is the most valuable thing you can do. Now, I'm not saying that that's going to fix everything, but I think it's going to take persistence. And um, I think we have to have some hope in that. Otherwise, what else do we have? Uh, really remarkable uh, statement from you just there, Josh. Really appreciate it. And, and, and re remarkable that, that your partner, Lacey, was able to do that for you as well. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. Coming up next here, new missile launches from North Korea reported in the past few hours as the U.S. accuses Russia and China of enabling that testing. We're going to get a threat assessment from a retired U.S. Major General just days after Japan warned its people to take cover. That's next. New tonight, North Korea has launched two more short-range ballistic missiles after test-firing a missile over Japan on Tuesday. The U.S. and its allies responding earlier this week with their own show of force by launching fighter jets for joint aerial exercises with Japan and by firing long-range rockets with South Korea. The military reminder comes along with an offer for talks. We have made it clear to Kim Jong-un we're willing to sit down with no preconditions Retired U.S. Army Major General Spider Marks joins me now. Uh, General, thanks so much for spending some time with us tonight. Uh, what do you, you think this latest uh, missile launch means? North Korea wants to remind everybody that they're still there. I, I don't mean to sound flippant about the whole thing. But the world has been focused on Ukraine. The world has been focused on Xi Jinping. Clearly, um, Kim Jong-un's benefactor and what Russia is achieving in Ukraine and how they're acting. So the world of autocrats has a broad canvas on which to play, and this is clearly what's happening. Also, what we're seeing is North Korea has not given up its desire to marry up its missile technology with its burgeoning nuclear technology. That's the big concern. And, and so you look at these missile tests, and you say, okay, I got it. And the one we saw on Tuesday is the first one in five years that's flown over Japan. That's frightening, only because we don't know what the technology looks like. If I was in Japan, I'd run for cover as well. And then in response to the deployment of the Ronald Reagan carrier battle group into the sea of the exercises, the routine exercises that South Korea and the United States conduct, um, that, that this reaction by Kim Jong-un and his actions are not surprising. Yeah. So what is the message that the U.S. is trying to send with when we just showed pictures of those uh, exercises they're doing with the Japanese and the South Koreans? North Korea needs to pay attention. The United States and South Korea have this incredibly vibrant alliance. Our relationship with Japan is increasingly strong. The militaries in both South Korea and Japan are modernized and are top-notch capabilities. The United States is a very, has been forever a presence in that part of the world, and North Korea has continued through its activities to kind of try to ignore all that, and they want to make sure that they're recognized. Um, and that they're noticed. Clearly, we have not forgotten about North Korea. This <laughs> demonstrates that we won't forget about North Korea.
Yeah, no, clearly not. And here's actually what John Kirby with the National Security Council had to say about the exercises. Take a look. And this is not the first time we've done this in response to provocations by the North to make sure that we can demonstrate our own capabilities bilaterally with the South Koreans and with the Japanese. So if these, this is the action we take in response, but we've still seen 23 tests conducted this year, that missile over Japan that you pointed out, why has it not stopped them? Why is there no deterrence effect, it seems? Well, that's the key. That's the key question. Look, what John Kirby indicated is not just a response by the United States and its allies. These are routine activities that take place as a matter of um, exercise and readiness deployments. I mean, this is what the United States and our allies do so very, very well. It happens to be the day after these, the, this test on Tuesday. So this is routine activity. Um, but North Korea, I, I think the key issue is the United States and our allies need to re-examine what the overall desired end state is in terms of our relationship with the North. We are going to maintain a large presence. We have indicated, previous administrations have indicated, that we are prepared to have open discussions without conditions going forward, and we need to continue to do that. The North has demonstrated, quite surprisingly, that it's not going to implode. It's been like this for over 70 years, and that's the biggest concern, is an implosion, that everything just kind of collapses, and then you have 25 million North Koreans heading to the South. I can guarantee you they're not going to head to China. They're going to go towards... So it's a fundamental rewriting of what the what the relationship needs to look like. There might be aid involved in that. There might be opening the doors that might have to take place. So quickly, sir, the U.S. today called for an emergency meeting of the Security Council, the U.N. Security Council. And what are the chances that China and Russia agree to anything along those lines? Zero. Not going not, not gonna to happen. Um, <laughs> look, the world's a great place. The world is a better place with the U.N. than without the U.N. I'm just not saying that anything is going to come out of that. We've gone down this path before. We need to continue to go down this path. We need to continue to talk and to try to open the doors with North Korea. All right, General Spider-Marks, thanks very much for your insight tonight, sir. We really Thank appreciate your time. You. you bet. Thank you. Coming up next, Elon Musk, suddenly ready to deal again, buying Twitter, maybe at the old price. Is he serious this time? And what would that mean for the possible return of at real Donald Trump? That's next. In a major reversal, Elon Musk now says he wants to buy Twitter at full price after all. According to a securities filing on Tuesday, Musk told Twitter he is willing to buy the company at the original price of $54.20 per share. The New York Times is reporting tonight that before telling Twitter that his bid was back on the table, Musk tried to negotiate a discount of as much as 30%. This comes, of course, I mean, don't we all want that on our, you know, like I go to the department store, I would really like 30% off. Of course, after Musk waged a months-long battle to get out of his $44 billion acquisition deal, which Twitter sued him to complete. That lawsuit was set to go to trial in two weeks and would have forced the world's richest man to sit down for a deposition this week. Potential deal is once again raising questions about changes that Musk could bring to the platform, including how misinformation is moderated. Musk has also said that he would do away with permanent account bans, which means Donald Trump could be returning to the platform. Maria Cardona, Margaret Talib, and Doug High are all back with me. Um, 
Margaret, let me start with you here. Uh, we know he's pretty mercurial about this. He seems to be trying to do everything he can to get out of it, and there doesn't really seem to be a way out. Is that what's going on here? Far be it for me to guess what's really going on here, but I think the fact that uh, there's been so much focus on keep the lawsuit going until he closes the deal tells you that nobody really knows what to trust or what to believe. But let's say that this happens for the sake of the panel conversation. Um, obviously, for most Americans, why does it matter? It, it could have profound implications for the future of the First Amendment, the future of free speech, the future of political disinformation, um, the future of Donald Trump, as you mentioned but the future of future politicians who we don't know yet, who we haven't even imagined yet. Social media has such a powerful ability to reach. And even though it is a fraction of the American readership and the American public, most people do not read and right. engage on Twitter. The people who do can inject into the bloodstream of American culture, yeah. fundraising, voting, donations, behavior, voting, elections, the conversation, it has a profound influence, even though it really only represents a slice of the population. And when you look at the fact that SpaceX just launched a rocket with a Russian cosmonaut into space, and this nonsense is going on about, does he mean it? Is he going to close the deal or not? You realize how incredibly rich and powerful and ever-present Elon Musk is in everything that we soon do in the present, in the future. And that's why this is so important. Is that why he's often compared to a Bond villain? On the 60th anniversary of James Bond, is that why? <laughs> That's why. Um, yeah, no, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot there. I mean, look, so we can show you guys this, there's this text message that I actually think gets at a lot of the threads you were pulling on there. Um, and this came out because of this lawsuit. And, you know, part of what I'm interested to know is, did some of this information that, that poured out, is that part of the reason why Elon Musk wants this all to stop? This text with Joe Rogan, the podcast host, mm. April 4th, he says, Rogan, are you going to liberate Twitter from the censorship-happy mob? Musk says, I will provide advice which they may or may not choose to follow. I mean, Doug High, what do you take from that? I mean, there are a lot of Republicans, even you know, establishment Republicans, who've been very frustrated with how some of these social media mm -hmm. platforms have handled questions around speech, much you know, beyond. Donald Trump. I mean, is, is there anything to this? I mean, what, what would this look like? Well, that, that's an answer that is also a non-answer that can be a total answer, depending on <laughs> how, well, how good your really relationship is. Doesn't say much is. of anything. What do you feel? And it says nothing and everything, potentially. Look, for Republicans, uh, battling these, these tech companies it has been a real shift from where they were 10, 15 years ago. I'm old enough to remember going to Google with Eric Cantor. Um, Kevin McCarthy, who may be the next speaker, was a big proponent of Google and wearing the Google glasses and things like that. This is something that really speaks to the base. And one of the things that I think a lot of people don't understand about Washington sometimes is that solving the problem isn't necessarily what you want to do. You want to continue to show that you're trying to solve the problem because you can raise money from that. You can demonstrate that you're fighting, even though you haven't solved the problem that you're working Cynical, so hard. Cynical, but to. true. Yes. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. It's potentially terrifying um, if what he says he's going to do is, is what he's going to do. He's going to do away with permanent bans, which to me says that he is not really going to take seriously people who go on there and perpetuate misinformation and disinformation. And we know just how hurtful that has been, not just to politics, but to American society, to civil society, to civility itself. And look, as an American, I shudder at the fact, 
that Donald Trump might be back on Twitter because then, well, you know, like you said, it's not the real world, but it drives so much of what the real world headlines are. It certainly drives political discourse. And so are we going to continue to wake up if Donald Trump is on Twitter wondering what kind of crazy stuff he has tweeted that day? Well, so here's here's one thing I just will say. I mean, he is still a huge part, Margaret, of our national conversation. Regardless, we're talking about Elon Musk, Donald Trump. (laughs) (laughs) Donald Trump. Let's stick with Donald Trump, right? I mean, we we he has continually come up throughout this midterm Mm -hmm. cycle. What, in your view, is the impact of not having him on Twitter? How much has that hurt his ability to shape the narrative and the things we're talking about? Well, we're talking about him right now, so (laughs) right. I mean, look, as long as he continues to be a central topic of conversation uh, in the media, and as long as through his fundraising or the candidates that he promotes, he is able to uh, be winning for the Republican Party, he will maintain a very prominent role. The midterms are a test of that. His continuing fundraising prowess is a test of that. Um, Whether he gets back on Twitter or not, I suppose could be meaningful, but it's not like everyone stopped talking about Donald Trump. I do think that in terms of American democracy, what happens in social media... Look, free speech and, and, and the health of American democracy are inextricably tied together. And we don't know exactly what the impact of Musk could be, but it will have implications for democracy. It certainly will. All right, Maria Cardona, Margaret Talib, Doug High, thank you all for being with us tonight. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Don't go anywhere because Don Lemon tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.